And you can turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1, you can also stick a finger over in 2 Kings chapter 15 as well. So when I was a kid, uh, maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere in there, uh, a young boy in my hometown was killed in like a horrific hunting accident. Um, It was this really, really tragic thing and... Because it was a small town, you know, 12,000 people or something, because it was a small town, this kind of affected everybody, because everybody had some connection to this family. Either they knew them personally or a friend of a friend or knew of them or something. And so to some extent, I think a lot of people, even outside of the family, were processing some grief over what happened. And I was Remembering back to that time this week, and I, I remember, this is super random, but I remembered this story that was told at the time. Whenever we go through traumatic experiences or whenever we experience grief, one of the things that many of us will do is we'll, we'll, we'll try to figure out how to explain it like, or how to understand it. And so sometimes we will develop stories to help us understand what our grief or what our pain or what our experience is all about. And I, I remembered this story this week, and in retrospect, it's probably like totally apocryphal. Like it probably didn't happen or it didn't happen in the way that it was told to me at the time. Um, and yet, in the wake of this tragedy, this was a story that was passed around that I heard from adults, that I heard from other kids. And, and here's what it was. The story was this. Several weeks before this accident occurred, uh, this family had been visited by a local pastor. And at some point in time, they had attended this pastor's church, but had, had stopped going to church altogether. And, and so this pastor had come over to visit them and to invite them back to church, and yet they made it clear to him they had no intention of going back to church. They weren't interested. Thanks, but no thanks. And that his response to them was something like, you guys are playing with fire. Like, like, don't you know that the Lord isn't pleased with your behavior? And if you keep on this path, something terrible is going to happen to you. And then a few weeks later, their kid was dead. Right? So that's, that's a crazy story, right? That's a crazy story. And yet that was a story that I heard as a way of like explaining what had happened. Right? That, that these people didn't want to go to church. So God killed their child, right? And, 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 and people just seemed to be like, well, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. And I was thinking back to that this week as I was looking at today's text and just going, man, what do we do with something like that? Like, because most of us hopefully would hear a story like that and go, that's not how God works, right? God's not killing people's children because they don't go to church God is loving, God's gracious, God is merciful, and yet, and yet, for months now, we've been studying the minor prophets, 
right? We have been walking through these stories and these prophecies that God has delivered to the people of Israel through these prophets, Jonah, Amos, uh, Hosea, those are the ones we've talked about thus far. And the consistent theme is you guys have abandoned the Lord and so destruction and judgment are coming. That's been a consistent theme that we've been talking about every single week. And we know historically that that very thing came to pass, that the Assyrian armies came in and invaded uh, what was the northern kingdom of Israel. We talk about this almost every week, but the Hebrew people at this time were divided in two because of basically civil war, and you had the north and you had the south. And the north was still known pretty much as Israel, the south was known as Judah. So the Assyrians come in and they take the north. They destroy everything. They kill men and women and children and carry many people into exile. And a question I think we have to be asking, a question I hope you're asking as we study all of this is, who is this God? Like, who is he? Like, what is his character like? How do we explain things that we're reading about here in the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, let's go to Micah chapter 1 this morning. Just keep your Bible open. We're going to be looking at some from chapter 1 and chapter 2 this morning. We're going to start here. Um, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem, the word of the Lord. So as we begin this fourth book in our study, the prophet uh, Micah, we enter into the last of what's known as the pre-exilic prophets. Uh, the pre-exilic prophets are the ones who are speaking and preaching and teaching before the whole of the people of Israel are carried away into ex exile. And uh, I wanted to say X-Files real quick. Uh, <laughs> thus far, all the prophets have had a consistent characteristic. Everyone we've looked at, uh, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, all have had a consistent characteristic, and that has been that they were prophets um, who were speaking primarily to the northern kingdom 
of Israel. That was true for the three that we've looked at thus far, even though Jonah, as we know in the book of Jonah, is a little bit different. He goes to the city of Nineveh and actually preaches to the Assyrians as well. As we come to Micah today, though, we meet a prophet who is not from the north and is not necessarily explicitly speaking to the northern kingdom. He is from the south, as we read, he's from a place called Morishet, and he is speaking in the southern kingdom, even though his prophecy uh, is expanded to some extent to include all the Hebrew people. Thus far, the prophecies that we've considered, really except for Jonah, just because Jonah is a little bit different, they've all spoken to the fact that destruction was coming for Israel because of their sins. And their sins were myriad. Like they had abandoned Yahweh God to worship false gods. Uh, They had crushed the poor. They had put their trust in themselves. They had put their trust in their money and in their military rather than in God. And so what the prophets have told us thus far is God is sending destruction as a result of that. But before destruction comes, He has sent these messengers. He's sent these emissaries ahead, the prophets, to call the people to repentance, right? To inform them of their sin and to call them to a different way of living and being. So thus far, most of that has been about the north or what is sometimes known as Samaria. Samaria is also the capital city of the northern kingdom. Um, So sometimes it's just a word for the whole thing. But we haven't really talked about the south. We haven't really talked about Judah. What is going on in Judah? Micah of Morishet, a place which was like 20 miles south of Jerusalem, uh, declared God's word, our text says, during the reign of three kings in the south, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that span of time would have been something like 758 to 697, 758 to 697 BC. So we're still talking 700 years before the time of Christ at this point. That's when Micah is speaking. This would have been at roughly the end of the reign of the king known as Jeroboam II, who was the king in the north that we have been talking about this whole time, that Amos and Jonah and Hosea were all living under and kind of speaking to. Micah comes in at the very end of his reign and during the reigns of these three kings in the south. Um, Micah's probably speaking a few years after Hosea, who we just finished, and during Micah's time, he would watch the Assyrian armies come in and overtake the north and just totally decimate the land and the people. And they would even knock at the door of Jerusalem as well, but the Assyrians would never overtake Jerusalem. Here's the difference with Micah, though. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, they had nothing but an evil king to deal with. Right? Jeroboam II was just evil all the way through, according to Scripture. He didn't care anything about the Lord. He wasn't interested in worshiping God. Um, He was leading a nation that was crushing and oppressing the poor. And that was just par for the course with kings in the north. Literally every king, according to the Bible, in the north, from the very beginning when the nation split into, every king in the north had been evil. 
They had not followed the Lord. They had not worshipped him. They hadn't been obedient to him at all. So Jeroboam II was no different, right? He just happened to rule for a fairly significant amount of time, and he was ruling and reigning during a period of great prosperity and great military might. Micah, however, has a little bit more of a mixed bag. Among these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the first one, Jotham, was basically a good king. Here's what it says in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings kind of gives us blurbs for each of these monarchies. 2 Kings says, in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, so Pekah is the first significant king that comes after Jeroboam II in the north. During the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So this is interesting because it tells us he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a good king, and yet it, it dings him just a little bit. There's an asterisk here that he didn't remove the high places. The high places were the pagan altars throughout the land that, that literally existed at higher points of elevation throughout the land. And I, I don't know if that had to do with the fact that people thought they were getting closer to the gods or something like that by being elevated in some way, but there were altars scattered throughout the land. And so even though this was somebody who was righteous or good in the sight of the Lord, he also didn't put an end to a lot of the pagan worship that was going on throughout the land. He did, however, add to the temple in Jerusalem. He built this new upper gate in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So he expanded the temple to some extent. So this first, first king, Jotham, good king. Next king, Ahaz, Jotham's son, the exact opposite. Could not have been more different from his father. Second Kings 16 tells us in the 17th year, so just like 15 years later, 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God and his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Isn't that interesting? He walked in the way of the kings of the north. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So when the Israelites had originally come into this land, it was full of all of these Canaanite tribes that were pagan tribes. They had a bunch of different gods that they worshipped. They had a bunch of different religious rituals. And even though some of those people were driven, driven out of the land, a lot of their religious practices still remained, and these were snares for the people of Israel. The false gods that they worshipped, like Baal and Asheroth and these gods that we've talked about, those were ultimately Canaanite gods. And there were all of these horrible practices that the people took part in that were essentially religious practices, and one of those was sacrificing their own children to these false gods in the hope that it would bring them wealth or good luck or prosperity 
or whatever the case may be. And so this king, the son of a righteous man, follows in his father's footsteps by completely going in the other direction and doing things that were heinous in the sight of God. So Hezekiah, not a great guy, right? And it's uh, during the reign of Hezekiah, 723 B.C., that the north is wiped off the face of the map. Micah watches all of this. So, what follows, uh, or Ahaz, rather, uh, what follows is this king Hezekiah, who is one of the greatest kings that Judah had ever seen. Hezekiah comes and completely upends the reign of Ahaz. He restores temple worship. He rips down the pagan altars in the high places. He restores the full observance of the Passover. He even tries, uh, through diplomatic means, to restore the two kingdoms together. And he sends messengers to the north to invite the people from the north to come take part in the Passover, which had not happened in hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet, the messengers are laughed at. The people aren't interested. And so... um, they face destruction. Micah has this mixed bag, a good king, an evil king, a really good king, and yet, despite living in a time where there were some semi-decent kings, Micah brings a message of judgment. He brings a message of impending destruction for the north and the south. This wasn't just a message for the southern kingdom. It was a message for everybody, all Hebrews. And it's clear why this message would have fit with the north. They had always been evil. They had always worshipped other gods. Their kings had always been evil. But with the south, it showed this, that the beliefs or actions of one king did not necessarily change the beliefs or actions of a people, right? Just because one king was righteous and did what was right in the sight of the Lord didn't necessarily mean that people stopped worshiping false gods or sacrificing on the pagan altars. And and when you took the whole of Israel, like Judah and the north, when you took everything as a historical unit, you're ultimately looking at hundreds of years of collective disobedience and paganism. And sure, there were some decent leaders scattered in there throughout those hundreds of years, but on the whole, the people were disobedient and did whatever they wanted to do. And God has simply had enough. Look with me in verse 3 of our text, Michael 1. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of of Israel. Micah says that the Lord has witnessed everything, right? He, he's all seeing. He, he, he's seen everything that's happened. He's seen all the sin. There's nothing that he's missed. And as a result of what he's witnessed, he's coming out of his place, and it will be like the mountains are melting, and, and it'll be like the valleys are being split open. And, and this will all happen as easily as wax melts before a fire, he says. And what he says is that all of this is happening because of the transgression of Jacob and the sin of the house of Israel. And those are not two separate things. 
Uh, they are one and the same. Uh, he's not speaking of a northern kingdom or of a southern kingdom, but of a Hebrew people, the house of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, north and south, everyone. But, but like, what exactly have they done? What exactly have they done? That's a kind of a complicated question because, as we've said, they've done all kinds of things. There have been a myriad of sins. But look at verse 5. He says, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. But what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, meaning the north? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So two things here. First, Samaria itself. Samaria, as we said, was the capital city of the north. Jerusalem would have been the capital city of the south. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, and, and sometimes, as, as I mentioned earlier, the prophets would just call the whole thing Samaria. But as far as God is concerned, the whole northern kingdom is an abomination. Like an abomination is something that causes disgust. When I look at it, I recoil. And, and, and he says that's what God's doing with the north. He's, he's, he's disgusted by what he sees. He recoils at it. The picture that Micah paints, though, is that the sins of the north are sort of like a contagious disease. The sins of the north are, are slowly infiltrating the south. They're slowly permeating the border, and they're coming into the south. And so even though there have been some righteous kings in the history of the southern kingdom, the paganism of the north, the sin of the north, has slowly been creeping in. So hence, the high places of Judah in verse 5 that he mentions. Now there's pagan worship in the south. Now people are sacrificing on the hillsides and under trees. And, and, and this is all getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, the heart of Hebrew worship, the, the location of the temple. It's, it's like just this, this map of things coming closer and closer and closer. Even with Jotham, a king who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, there's still evil in the land. And with Ahaz, it comes all the way to Jerusalem, right? It permeates the gates of the city. Evil is sitting on the throne. Paganism is sitting on the throne. Verse 9, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And here's where the imagery depicts the way that sin like festered in Samaria and eventually came to the gate of Jerusalem. And the same thing was true of destruction. Samaria would be the first to fall, 723 BC, but eventually that destruction would find its way to the gate of Jerusalem as well. And by the end of chapter one, Micah lists the individual cities that essentially make up the approach to Jerusalem, like, like the path that an army would take. They're going to have to stop here and stop here and stop here. And these cities would eventually fall one by one by one by one as ultimately the Babylonian army came and overtake, overtook Jerusalem. So much like many of the other prophets, especially like Amos, Micah is in a sense building a case um, He's building a case against the people, like a legal case almost. And the primary reason for this is to show that the Lord is just. The Lord is just. The Lord is justified in his actions. Now, don't miss this. He has not arrived at his decision to destroy Israel without cause. 
right? This isn't arbitrary. He didn't wake up one morning and go, "Ah, I think I'm just going to wipe them off the planet today. This is something that has been a long time coming. This is because um, the psalmist says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So what that means for us is that while God cannot act like he hasn't seen what he's seen, and while God cannot act like he doesn't know what he knows, his character is such that he errs on the side of grace and mercy instead of anger, and he errs on the side of long-suffering patience rather than just quick, wipe-them-out judgment. God could have destroyed Israel at any point in time, right? Like, this, this, this sin was not new, Their worship of other gods was not new. Their treatment of the poor was not new. They'd been doing this for hundreds of years. God could have completely annihilated them at any given point in time, but he hadn't. He had, had like, borne their sin. Like, he had walked with them. He had sent the prophets to call out to them and to convict them and, and and to show them what their sin is like, even going so far with Hosea to say, man, I want your whole life right, to model what this looks like. And yet the prophets were continually rejected. So here in chapters one and two, the two big accusations that Micah makes are this. If you turn over to chapter two, first he says, you have devised ways to steal people's property and livelihoods so that you can get richer. This is verse one or verse two, rather, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. So that's accusation number one. That's not new either. Like you guys are scheming and devising ways to steal what other people have so that you can be richer, right? The second thing he says is this, verse six. The second accusation is that you've refused to listen to the true words of the Lord. So verse six, do not preach, Thus they preach, meaning the other prophets in the land. This is, this is like their feedback to Micah's preaching. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Why do you say bad things, Micah? Why do you say judgment and destruction's coming? This is, this is Judah, right? This is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. The Lord is with us. Don't say things like that. Destruction's not going to overtake us. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Don't say those things. Verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Hey, if you're righteous, then you have nothing to worry about. But who's righteous here? Who's actually following the Lord in the way that he's commanded you to? And then verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the prophet for this people. This is what we want. Like we want people who tell us what we want to hear. We want people to tell us that we're doing okay. We want people who will even like validate things that we might think to be wrong, who would tell us that our sins are actually not sins. That was true then, it's true now. So so Micah sarcastically in verse 11 says that even if a prophet or a preacher came along and said something like, God delights when you're drunk, like God loves it when you're just completely 
just smashed and have no concept of what's going on. God loves that, that the people would go, this is our guy, right? Like, this is our new teacher. That's what they're looking for. And isn't that true today? Have you seen that? Have you experienced that? So often the question we're asking is, is not, God, what do you want to say to me? God, what do you have for me? And dealing with the fact that so often what God has to say to us is hard. And the things that God calls us to are hard so often because they require things like self-denial, not always pursuing what we want, not always seeking after comfort or power or money. That sometimes what God wants is for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. I don't know if you've heard that before. But what do we want? We want somebody who tells us the opposite. No, you're great. You're good to go. You're doing exactly what God wants. He's totally pleased with you right now. We want to hear those kinds of things. And if you look at a lot of like the televangelists that are on TV today, man, that's so much of what that stuff is. Send me money and I'll keep telling you about how great you are. And about how happy God is and how powerful you are as well. As Micah declares this message, he's declaring the fact that the people don't have ears to hear the truth that God would have them hear and act on. I don't only want you to know the truth, I want you to be changed by it. I want you to repent. I want you to turn from your sin and turn back to me. The church here in America, in many sectors over the last 50, 70 years, has come to validate things that have long been thought of as sin. I mean, throughout much of the 2,000-year history of the church and even before, things that have been thought of as sin, the church in many places in America today have just kind of said, eh, I think that's okay. Uh, a great example of this is divorce, and this is something that's changed a lot over even our lifetimes. Um, the scripture is clear. God hates divorce, right? It, it says that explicitly. It's never his intention. And, and even though the Bible would suggest that maybe in one or two instances there is some validity for divorce, namely in instances of infidelity, it is still something that grieves the Lord. Because it is not his will, it's not his plan, that's not how he would have things be. But the American church today has gotten real casual with divorce. And, and, and my guess is you guys have witnessed some of this. I mean, there was a time where it was like, it seemed like nobody, especially in church leadership, was divorced or had ever been divorced. And nothing like that ever happened. Or if people got divorced, they just stopped going to church altogether. Um, but, but now we live in a time where perhaps more so than any other generation, we somewhat see it as being like a morally neutral thing. It, like it, it just totally depends on the situation, doesn't it? And, 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 and yet throughout much of Christian history, it's been biased towards, no, 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 the Lord hates this. And, and we should explore every possible solution so this is not where things end up. Whereas today the church has swung to this other side of going, you know what, if it's just not right, if it's just not a good situation for you, if it's not what you want, if, it, if, you, if it's not what you thought you were getting into, if it's not your preference, then, then, then clock out. Do something else. Have you noticed that shift, how that's changed? Right, so this is just an example 
of the ways that we find people who say, you know what, I I don't think that's maybe as bad as we thought it was. Or maybe I don't know that that's as detestable to God as we thought it was. And so often, like, we want to validate things so we feel better about ourselves. So, So listen, Micah's point here is that the people have become so morally compromised that they simply won't even listen to a truthful preacher. They won't hear and accept like the sin that is staring them in the face. And this, again, shows that the Lord is just in his proclamation of destruction on Israel. And I've said this before, but I'll say this again. God is not just one thing. Like, God is love, but you don't get to define his love. He is love, and he gets to define what love is. But God is not only love, right? God is also perfect in his justice. He is perfect in his mercy. He is perfect in his wisdom. He is not only one thing. The scripture presents this notion that God is multifaceted and mysterious in many ways. We just read a book called In His Image by Jen Wilkin as a church, and it was all about the communicable attributes of God, like the things that he is that we can aspire to, that he is loving and merciful and gracious and wise, and that those are things that we should seek to model in our lives, that we should look to him and say, how do I move in the direction of being more loving and being more gracious, and not by some standard or definition that we make up, but by the standard that he has set through his very being. So God is not just one thing. It's not his only attribute. And even though God sends destruction on Israel, what accusation can we make against him here? Right? Has, can you say that God hasn't been loving to Israel? Well, of course not. Right? They were enslaved And then he sent Moses, who freed them from slavery, and they were released from 400 years of captivity, and they were brought into the desert, and they were provided for with food and water. And and then they were given their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the Lord, through his power, drove out the people who lived there so that they could take possession of the land. He's sustained them. He's provided for them. Can we say that God hasn't been loving towards them? Absolutely not. Can you say that God hasn't been patient with Israel? (laughs) Please. Like, like he could have wiped them all out in the desert after they came out of Egypt. Remember, they melted down their jewelry and made a golden calf and bowed down to it. God would have been totally justified in just clearing the chessboard at that point in time. But he didn't, right? Moses interceded on their behalf, and God was gracious and allowed them to continue. He has been abundantly patient with them over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. Has God not been generous to Israel? Has he not blessed them? Has he not given them food and provision and shelter and land and leadership and all of those kinds of things? Yes, he's given those things to them. Has God not treated Israel justly? Has he been unjust to them in any way at any point in time? Has he not been clear on what he wants from them? Oh, no. Like, he's been abundantly clear. If you don't recall, he handed down this whole law to them and said, that's what I want. Just so there's no confusion, that's it, right there. 
So how could we ever say that God has erred in some way here? How could we ever say that God has done the wrong thing? And the point to us today would be this. God has not changed. He's not some different God in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. And he's, he's also not this angry God who's just itching to strike people down. That's not who he is. In fact, the picture that scripture paints is that he's quite the opposite. He's a God who is so loving and so generous and so merciful that he sacrificed his only son so that our sin and waywardness would not result in our destruction. I think that's why when King Ahaz sacrificed his kid to false gods, you got to understand why that's so heinous to our God. Like, not only the fact that it's just nothing Like, it does nothing. It is nothing. This God is not real. You are accomplishing nothing by doing this. Like, it's it's an abomination to him because of the fact that he would ultimately give his son, right? He would sacrifice his one and only so that something real and valid and tangible would happen. So that people could actually be reconciled to God. Not just so that people would get some money or some power or like, some, like a new thing or whatever. But so that real life could be experienced eternally as God's child. God has been nothing but loving. He's been nothing but just. Nothing but kind. Nothing but generous. And his kindness... Scripture says, is what is meant to lead us to repentance. That when we look at him, we're convinced of why we should change and why we should be different. We're to learn from the example of Israel. We ask questions, naturally, about why terrible things happen in our world, and we make attempts to explain them. But the explanation is real simple. Our world is broken because of sin. Our world is broken because of sin. Terrible things happen in our world as the result of sin. And it's not just the sin of some people. It's not just the sin of Adam and Eve. No, the scriptures suggest that this is a guilt that we all share. It's a guilt we all share. And this is the story of the Bible in many ways. But here's the thing. We have no ability to look at any situation and say that something has or hasn't happened because of someone else's sin. We have no ability to look at any situation and make a judgment call on why something has or hasn't happened and say it's because of someone else's sin. And I think it makes us look like fools when we do it, right? Some of you guys remember uh, Jerry Falwell in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, going, well, let me tell you why God did this. It's because all these gay people in New Orleans. And I'm going, how does Key West still exist, right? Like, like, are there not gay people in Shreveport, right? We look like fools. When, When some preacher stands up and names the particular group of people that they happen to hate as the cause of all of our problems and ills, when the reality is we are the cause of all our problems, right? It's not them, whoever them is for you. It's me. This is is what Jesus is talking about. Like, we we have to consider the proverbial log in our own eyes, right? Because at the end of the day, while we can't say anything 
about the sin of other people and what may or may not have happened, we can look at our own lives. We can look inside ourselves. We have the ability to look at our own lives and examine the ways that our own unwillingness to put sin to death separates us from God. The ways that you have fallen short of the glory of God, I've fallen short of the glory of God, and are thus deserving of nothing other than death. That is the proverbial log in our own eye, right? Our own sin. And we love to avoid our own sin by focusing on the sin of other people. We love to act like our sin is not there, much like the people of Judah. We love to place the blame and responsibility on other people. But this is how we learn from the example of Israel. God gave them everything. God gave them everything. A land, provision, wealth, safety, food, protection, abundant kindness, which they repeatedly rejected to the point of their own destruction. And he's done the same thing for each of us. Just look at your life. Look at what you have. Look at what God has done for you. Look at what he's given you. Look at your children. Has God not been kind to you in spite of yourself, in spite of your own sin? Has God not been generous to you? Has he not been loving to you in spite of the ways that at times you've turned your back on him? He certainly has in my life. And this is what he wants us to see, y'all. This is the truth. Our text in Ephesians earlier talked about speaking the truth in love to other people. That isn't about speaking your opinion to other people. No, no, no. It's about speaking the truth of the gospel to other people. That's the truth, is that God in his kindness sent his only son so that we wouldn't have to face the destruction that these people faced, so that we could be saved from that through the death and resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel. Friends, today's text should lead us to yet again examine the areas of our lives that we have not fully submitted to Christ. We often say that we are all unbelievers in some way, shape, or form. Like there's some area of your life that you, if you're being honest, you, that you just haven't fully submitted to him. Some area of your life that you struggle to believe. Some area of your life where you go, is that real? Is that true? Like we all have that. And, and that's the process of maturity. It's the process of sanctification. It's putting sin to death, yes. It's also learning to trust him with more and more and more and more of your life. To truly trust him with your future, your finances, your well-being, your health, to truly give it all to him because he is good and he's proven himself to be good. Why would we ever doubt him? Why would we ever say, oh, I'm not sure? What more could God possibly do for you that would lead you to give more over to him? So this is interesting. Micah 2 ends not with destruction, but it ends with actually an optimistic view of the future. And we've seen this throughout the Minor Prophets. It's a picture that actually points us to the coming Messiah, to one who will unite all under the banner of salvation and under the banner of the only true and righteous king. 
Jesus. Let me close with these final words from chapter two. God says through Micah, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is what he wants for them, for us, that we would be a people whose lives are fully submitted to the true and righteous King Christ, that our very being would be dependent on him, our future would be dependent on him, that all things would be entrusted to him, that he would truly go before us, as we sang this morning, as our King forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love this morning. Thank you for time to worship together as a church family, to speak of you and your kingdom, and to be reminded of your long-suffering patience, your grace, your mercy, your abundant love, but also your justice. You are a God who is jealous for our love and our affection. You are jealous for our allegiance. You will not tolerate us giving our submission to anything other than you. And God, you are demonstrating through your actions, through your words, through giving your only son, that you truly love us, that you have truly made us, made a way for us to experience real life and life that extends outside of this world, life as your beloved children, as a part of your family, at your table. And so God, this morning, even though we may not all understand every piece of that, even, there, even though there may be parts of this that are mysterious to us, even though there may be parts of this that we struggle to believe, Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would impress upon us the truth of who you are. And God, that as a result of that, we would be led to submit all things to you. And what you teach us is that when we submit all things to you, what we find is that suddenly our burden is lightened. Our load is lifted. And that the fruit of this are things like joy and peace. And in a world filled with depression and anger and suicide and children that die and tragedy. Father, I pray that we would all truly pursue a different path. Not just putting our trust in the same old worldly things and thinking that somehow we'll be different than everybody else, but placing our trust and our hope in something that does not rust and does not deteriorate and doesn't go away and doesn't die. Something that is real and lasting and eternal. Father, help us surround us with love and support from our church family and those around us, God, and give us encouragement and boldness and courage to pursue the things you've called us to. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.